So we have covered uh, historical background, literary context, surrounding context, um, how to do a careful reading of the word. And today we're going to see something that is kind of unique that we normally don't think about when we're interpreting scripture. Um, and that is our role as interpreters. What do we bring to the text? So let's just start with a word of prayer, then we will jump right in. Gracious Father, thank you. Thank you for uh, your word that is um, alive, that it still speaks to us today, that is still relevant to us. Lord, we know that you had an intended meaning behind every verse, uh, not something mysterious, but something that we can um, find out by a careful study and independence of your spirit. I pray that you would help us to see these things, um, to be aware of ourselves as we're reading our scriptures, and um, help us to understand and, and apply these things to heart. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let me just see if I uh, have it on. So what we bring to the text... I'm going to be referring to some of our textbook. We are in chapter um, 7, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, chapter 7. What do we bring to the text? Um, I did use some extra materials, so if you are interested in getting some of the things that I uh, have here, I can email it to you in the PowerPoint presentation. So some charts that might be helpful. All right. So uh, the, this context is often overlooked, and though it is the world from which the readers approaches the text. We as readers of the Bible are not by nature neutral or objective. We bring a lot of preconceived notions and influences with us to the text when we read. And because of this, we need to discuss and evaluate these pretext influences lest they mislead us on our search for the meaning of the text. Now, that doesn't mean that all the, the pre-text information that we have, it is unhelpful. Uh, but actually, we're going to see at the end of the class here, it is part of God's uh, even revelation to us as he reveals to us his word and the meaning to help us to understand even further the scripture. So, for that, I uh, found it, this helpful information. You might come across uh, some these terms from um, elements of communication. It's, this is from sp speech act theory. I don't know if you guys have taken any classes when you're in college of speech act theory. But these three elements, elocution, um, locution, and perlocution. What do they mean? Big words. Let's see. Locution refers to what is spoken or written, the words and sentences in a given statement or discourse. This is what we have available in the Bible. Elocution, this identifies the intention of the speaker or writer has by using those specific words, what do the words actually accomplish, what, what energy does the author employs, and what content does the author convey? This focuses on what the author was seeking to do for the readers. And then perlocution, this refers to focus on uh, what the speaker or the writer envisioned the outcome of the results to be for the listener or reader. So it kind of focuses on the response, as you can see that on the B side, uh, focuses on the reader or listener of those words. So when we seek to understand the meaning of a biblical text, we possess only the words of Scripture that has been written. We don't have the original authors to come and talk to us and explain what they meant by what they wrote, or, nor do we have the original audience to ask them, well, okay, you received this letter, what, what does it mean? <laughs> um, so the first hearers and readers remain equally 
inaccessible, so we cannot ask them to tell us what message um, that they received. Only by means of written text itself, the locution and its context can help us reconstruct the meaning of that saying or that utterance, considering both elocution and perlocution. So the author most likely intended. So recognizing this speech act distinction reminds us that we must consider more than only the words on the page and what they mean. Any assessment of meaning must take into consideration this complex interplay between the author and us who are reading it. So that leads us, and you will see here on our first page from chapter 7, uh, the concept of pre-understanding, pre-understanding. The term pre-understanding describes what the interpreter brings to the task of interpretation. The scholar D.S. Ferguson provides a succinct uh, definition of this. He, he says, and I quote, Pre-understanding may be defined as a body of assumptions or attitudes which a person brings to the perception and interpretation of reality or any aspect of it. So that, that not only applies to scripture but to really anything. Uh, we have a pre-understanding that it somehow influences us to understand what someone is trying to convey to us. So it is the basic and preparatory starting point for understanding. The pre-understanding is desirable and essential. Certain background knowledge and experiences are pertinent to understanding other experiences and situations. They formulate a paradigm for, to help us to function and make sense out of the world. Um, that's why we go to historical background books or commentaries maybe to have some insight into the history or the culture back then that we need to reconstruct in order to understand a certain passage. So under, pre-understanding is formed by both good and bad influences. All right, so keep this in mind. It's both good and bad. Some accurate and some inaccurate pre-understanding. It includes all that you have heard in Sunday school or at church, in Bible studies, or in your private reading of the Bible. However, pre-understandings of biblical texts are also formed by hymns or other Christian music that we listen to, pop songs, jokes, art, non-biblical literature, both Christian and secular, that influence our understanding. Likewise, culture constantly creeps in. The student sitting next to, uh, and I like the example that um, our this, this textbook uses, it says, the student, student sitting next to Albert Einstein turned to him and asked, what do you do? And Einstein replied, I'm a student of physics. Um, and then he turned to the, to the boy and said, what do you do? And then the student answered, well, I finished studying physics last year. I'm already done with that. They were very two different realities, <laughs> their knowledge of physics. So pre-understanding in a specific arena may help us to understand further, but it provides no guarantee that we will interpret it accurately. As this scholar says, uh, it offers no more than a provisional way of finding a bridge or a starting point toward further, more secure understanding so from the very first, uh, it is capable of correction and readjustment. So we can even readjust this pre-understanding that we have. The pre-understanding may distort the reader's perception of reality and function like the unconscious prejudice adversely affecting the interpreter's ability to perceive accurately. It surely affects how someone will interpret the Bible unless something challenges that initial understanding. We do not always consciously adopt or even recognize our pre-understandings and the role that it plays on the interpretive process. So I, I want you to note that your pre-understanding of any given passage may indeed be correct. You might actually come with the right 
interpretation. Uh, the problem, however, is that often is not, and until you study the text seriously, you simply do not know whether it is accurate. The danger here is for those who assume that their pre-understanding is always correct. Okay, so this is a, a given question here on your next quiz, okay? Van Hooser labors this attitude as pride. He says, this kind of pride, he writes, encourages us to think that we've got the correct meaning before we have made the appropriate effort to recover it. Pride does not listen, it knows. Scholars have identified four categories of pre-understanding here. Um, and I have, I put there, um, we go back to these ones here in a little bit. Um, all right, categories of pre-understanding. Uh, so there is the informational pre-understanding that we bring, so that the information one already possesses about a subject prior to approaching it. So say you might have listened to a sermon where a pastor had explained the historical uh, cultural background and that will be the information that you're utilizing when you're reading the text. Then there's the attitudinal that has to do with the disposition that one brings into approaching a topic, also termed as prejudice or bias or predisposition. So this is so interesting on how you, you will even see connecting to the next one, which is ideological. Um, certain people have already strong reactions. So the feminist movement, when they read 2 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, they're already coming, this is wrong, this is not. <laughs> um, so it, it is the attitude that someone has, a prejudice that predisposes them to interpret the text in a certain way. Then we have ideological, and we will expound a little bit more on this one, both generally and the way we view the complex reality, our worldview, it has to do with our worldview, our frame of reference, and particularly how we view a specific subject, the point of view or perspective. In here, we have um, the influences of philosophies or influences of psychology. You remember once we had a guy coming to preach here, and we had to correct him afterwards because he was trying to interpret the parable of um, the prodigal son from a total psychological standpoint and not taking into consideration the historical background. Even the way he picked on the historical background, he went all, all over the place to prove his point. So we do bring these things. And then we have the last example here is the methodological. The actual approach one takes in explaining a given subject. So possible approaches include scientific, historical, and inductive. So pre-understanding, and, and this is on your um, book there. And there's a few examples of, of categories. So let's just see what page we're in here if you want to follow along. Um, yeah, we're looking at page 79. Um, so pre-understanding. Another danger is uh, actually 78. 78. Um, another dangerous aspect of pre-understanding surfaces when we come to the text with an, a theological agenda. Uh, already formulated. That is, we start into a text with the specific slant we're looking for, and we use the text merely to search for details to fit our agenda. Anything that does not fit in with the meaning that we're looking for, we simply skip or ignore. Van Hooser, that same guy that talked about the, the pride, humorously labels this as overstanding instead of understanding. You're placing your understanding over something. That is, we as readers stand over the Word of God and determine what it means, rather than placing ourselves under the Word of God 
and seeking diligently to determine what God means in that text. So that's where I think the previous slides will be a little bit helpful. It is the distinction between exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is a critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially of scripture. In exegesis, we're trying to dig into the Bible to discover the real meaning. With eisegesis, it's the other way around. <clears throat> An interpretation, especially of scripture, that expresses the interpreter's own ideas, bias, and like rather um, the, the meaning of that text. And that's why you will have people like Joe Osteen <laughs> that will, will come to the text and have his own preconceived ideas and preconceived notions, and he's going to pick and choose some verses to, to bring about his point. Uh, it will have someone who, who is a scientist, for instance, and he, he would approach the Bible and think, well, I think that reading Genesis chapter 1 Maybe day wasn't really day, if it was a, a long period of time. Um, and they'll bring those, those preconceived ideas into, and read them into the text of the Bible. Uh, a careful study of Scripture does exegesis. It lets the Scripture speak for itself. And what we're trying to do is to understand its meaning. All right, so... This leads us to our um, sentence there that by the end of this year, Lord willing, you'll have it memorized. It's not that hard, okay? A text, maybe you can repeat it with me. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. All right? So have that in your mind when you are approaching Scripture. I, if I am not looking at the context, I'm just going to proof text. And we all do this to a certain degree. I was even commenting with Lindsay as I was prepping for the sermon um, today and was reading MacArthur's commentary. And there were some passages I'm like, where is it? I don't see the connection here at all <laughs> on this. But it, we all do. We all have, maybe I, I was the one with my preconceived ideas and I'm like, I don't think this is right. So... Um, Another example of this is the attitude dimension that we bring into the text. Um, I don't know if some will be familiar with this name here, Wellhausen. He was a German um, liberal scholar that influenced really a lot of the modern and contemporary theology. And he was a, a person that was anti-Semitic. He was... His anti-Judaism led him to denigrate the law of the Old Testament. He completely ignored it because um, it, it reminded him of the Jews. Um, Gunko is another name with his form criticism. It's a methodological element simply significantly affected a whole generation of Old Testament scholarship. So the way that people approach now the Bible is based on all these theories by these guys. That started really with their attitude toward a certain element of, of the Bible or the people of the Bible. And this now it's, is in your book, the, the aspect of familiarity. We are thoroughly familiar with a, a passage. We tend to think that we know all there is to know about it and are prone to skip over it without studying it carefully. When we were at the stage of making observations, you'll remember that when we were studying the sentences and the paragraphs and the bigger chunks of text, I hope that you realized that, the, um, you realize that most passages have a lot of depth to them. We are unlikely to exhaust them and to grasp all there is to grasp in a few short visits to the text. So free familiarity with a text creates this pre-understanding for us to approach it. As we revisit this familiar text, we must resist the temptation of letting our familiarity dictate our conclusions before we even get started studying a text. We need to study it afresh, lest our pre-understanding turns into pride. 
Furthermore, if we skip over serious fresh study of a text because we think we know it already, all we see in the Bible is what we saw last time. And I think this is so critical. If we always come with the, oh, I already know this, uh, you never grow. You, you never learn anything new, and you're, you, you remain stagnant. You remain stunt, uh, stunt, stunted in your growth, in your spiritual growth. Another element to consider here is culture. Culture. One of the most powerful and yet subtle aspects of pre-understanding is that of culture. This culture-driven disposition we call cultural baggage. Okay, cultural baggage. Um, and <clears throat> our author used this illustration. Imagine that you're going to embark on a long hike in the mountains on a hot day. You wear good hiking boots and a hat. You bring sunglasses in a canteen. I think about when I used to hike in California. The um, This is going to sound so bad. But the, the, the most interesting people in the hikes were uh, the, the Asian because they were overprepared. Like they had backpack and, you know, camel bag. And it, it was so much. And, I, I mean, I would look people around and just hiking on their sandals. <laughs> it just, it, it was... Anyways, should you, should you bring three or four suitcases along on your hike? How ridiculous. Can you imagine hiking through the mountains with a suitcase under each arm? So it, this is the cultural baggage sometimes that we bring into interpreting scripture. It is not helpful. Our culture tends to make us skew at the text as we read it twisting it to fit our cultural world, or our culture works in our subconsciously to fill in the gaps and the missing details of the passage as we are reading it. A good illustration of culture subconscious influence on our understanding occurs when we read the book of Jonah. I have you to do an assignment on the book of Jonah, right? And then trying to visualize Jonah inside the great fish. What does it look like? You know, if you can, if you can picture it, well, what does it look like? Would it be something like, just a second here, oh. Uh, would it be something like this? Jonah sitting there in the, in, the, in the belly of the fish or the whale, whatever that was, um, and he's uncomfortable and there's some water there uh, under him, but he still has, you know, a few feet above himself is comfortable, he can breathe, and <clears throat> so that, that's normally the picture, right, that we, we, we tend to see. But do you see Jonah? Jonah is squashed up inside of a tight stomach of a whale with no space between him and the stomach walls. I mean, it would be pitch dark. He <laughs> couldn't see anything. Most people do not see that image. Many people, including ourselves, see Jonah inside a circular-shaped stomach about six to eight feet in diameter with a little bit of water at the bottom. Obviously, this is not really what the inside of a whale or a fish looks like. And, I mean, can you imagine what it would be with the gastric juices? Um, how he, he, he really got deformed when he came out of that fish. So, I mean, just his picture getting into Nineveh, people were already like, what happened to this guy? This, you know, if this happened to him, who knows the God that he's talking about, let alone us that don't know him. So, obviously, this is not really the, what the inside of the fish looks like. So, why do we see this? Where might this image come from? The authors of our textbook suggest that it comes from the movie or the book, what? Pinocchio. <laughs> you remember, uh, I don't know if you've seen Pinocchio or read it, but you remember that um, Geppetto, how, how do you pronounce it? Geppetto. Geppetto. Um, it was there in a little boat. There was a whole boat inside of that fish. <laughs> 
And there was a lamp there, and he was comfortably fishing, you know, pretty dry there, no, no, no issues. And then Pinocchio comes in later, and boy, do they have space in there. Very spacious, and um, doesn't, he doesn't even look um, wet at all. <laughs> so... Um, Subconsciously, we begin to fill into the descriptive gaps in the Jonah story with information that comes from a Hollywood movie. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and I think I, I forgot to bring it, but I was going to bring my... Uh, Lindsay has a, a ch children's Bible uh, in Portuguese, so it's the language is easier to, to read and understand. And um, you probably will have this picture as you think about Noah's Ark. What do you envision? A bunch of, of squished up animals on this little type boat and the giraffe's neck sticking out of the, the, the boat. Just, and, and really, if you read the biblical description, I mean, if you've been to um, the Ark of Encounter in Kentucky, you will have a, a pretty good idea that that's not at all what the Ark looked like. So... What exactly do we mean by culture? So culture is a combination of family and national heritage. You learned, you learned it from your mom at breakfast, from the kids at the playground at school, or from YouTube. It defines here, it is a mix of language, costumes, stories, movies, jokes, literature, and national habits. It can vary somewhat, however, even within the same city. Um, before we get there, I, I think about, especially, we're a generation of memes, right? They have a meme for everything, including for biblical passages. And I, I cannot now uh, read uh, the, the account that Peter got to, the, to the, the tomb, Jesus' tomb, before, um, before even, uh, well, actually, no, John arrived before Peter, but Peter went in, right? And it is this, uh, they have like Captain America and this guy, and they're, they're running to see who gets there first. And, and that's the image now that I have of that, you know, that competition. And then John goes and, and, and writes, but the disciple who Jesus loved got there first, <laughs> you know? So, it, it, we do have now all this baggage that we accumulate the way we look at the scripture. Your context, if you grew up in an inner city, blue-collar, Catholic home with both parents, your culture differs in many aspects from that of someone who grew up in a suburban, white-collar, single-parent, Protestant home, but it will still share many of the, the same cultural influences. So we recognize full well that Christians do not culturally misread the Bible intentionally. As noted, all of us tend to be influenced by our culture subconsciously. This transportation of the biblical text into our cultural world is what the scholars call interpretational reflex. Interpretational reflex. The good word there for you to keep it. Uh, it's a natural thing to do. We, we do it without even thinking about it. In this situation, based on our culture, we subconsciously create a world of interpretive possibilities, a world in, in a world of interpretive impossibilities. In other words, our cultural setting has driven us to decide possible and impossible meanings for the text even before we study them. In the United States, one consequence of interpretational reflex is the doctrine of American exceptionalism. I, I don't know if you have seen this in some churches where you know, nationalism is exalted and, and the heritage of the pilgrims is confused with the actual scriptures. Um, and so I'm, I have an example here from... Um, Ronald, Ronald Reagan's speech, The Shining City on a Hill, you, if you're familiar with famous speeches. of, um, And here's what he um, said on... Let me see if I, all right, does that... Was, all right, there you go. 
1961, John F. Kennedy spoke these words just before assuming the office of the presidency. We shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. For we are setting out upon a voyage in 1961 no less hazardous than that undertaken by the Arbella in 1630. Kennedy was echoing a sermon given over 300 years earlier by John Winthrop on a ship called the Arbella during its transatlantic trip to America. Winthrop was one of a band of courageous colonists who set sail from England to find a new life and new freedom in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. But even Winthrop was not the author of this sentiment. He quoted Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 in his famous phrase, For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. His message combined both hope and warning. Others would be watching the Puritans' efforts to establish a community worth imitating. Ronald Reagan cited the shining city on a hill in his 1980 presidential campaign, and again in his farewell address to the nation in 1989. He explained that his vision was of an America teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. Reagan and Kennedy alike used the biblical phrase to urge the American people to live in a manner worthy of being emulated. So you see how things get fuzzy with um, people's understanding and, and preconceived ideas? I, I mean, I see nothing wrong with you being a nationalist and loving your country and uh, wanting to be an example to society. But that passage is, is pointing to the gospel coming through you to others. Um, so I'm going to give you here an example that might rattle you a little bit, okay? So turn to Romans 13. Romans 13. And we're going to read it. Verses 1 through 7. Oh, I'm in Acts. Romans 13. And it says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. For if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Okay. Now, plain read, reading of the text talks about subjection to authorities, um, and that includes paying taxes. With this passage in mind, would it, have, would have it been wrong for you to participate in the Boston Tea Party of 1773? In protest of a new tax on tea, American patriots dumped tons of someone else's tea into the Boston Harbor. Was that a Christian thing to do? Or suppose you were one of the minute men along the route between Concord and Boston on April 19, 1775. Should a Christian aim fire and kill the soldiers that represent the government? Does this... Does not conflict with Romans 13, or perhaps the larger question should be asked was the American Revolution undertaking 
into disobedience of Romans 13. Keep in mind that the revolution was more about economics than religious freedom. Remember, too, that when Paul wrote Romans, the government in Rome was much more oppressive and much more tyrannical than the British government under King George III ever was. What do you think? Perhaps some of you feels a little angry with this thought. Perhaps you're steamed up about our challenge to the legitimacy of this challenge of legitimacy of the glorious American Revolution. So please understand that my point here is not to change what you think about the American history. What I hope you saw was some inner emotional reaction in yourself to a fairly literal and normal reading of a biblical text. If you react strongly to our suggested understanding, to the suggested understanding of Romans 13, you should ask yourself, why did I react so strongly? We would suggest, this, uh, the authors say, that we struck a sensitive cultural nerve. Of course the revolution is more complicated than this. Uh, this is an oversimplification. Our purpose, it's not so much to criticize it as it is to use it as an illustration. However, I do want you to note that the American things that exert a powerful subconscious influence on the way we read and interpret the Bible. We need to be aware of these influences and to be conscious of their effect on our study. It is important that we at least be open to the possibility of Romans 17 being, being critical of the revolution. We're looking for what God is saying and not what our culture is saying. We must look to the details of the text and its historical setting to determine the answer, not our own cultural-driven pre-understanding. This is radical stuff. It must be difficult for, for us to digest sometimes. I understand that. So mull in it for a while. Talk to Christians of different cultures and get their perspective. Sometimes there are things that we think that this is the right interpretation. And you talk to someone in a different country, like, I didn't read that at all. Um, so here's a few just simple principles engaging the fact that you do have presuppositions. Okay? So first, admit that you have presuppositions. Then identify those presuppositions that you bring to the task. Evaluate and assess your presuppositions. Embrace those presuppositions you believe are valid. And then take steps to jettison those prepositions that you deem invalid. Okay? And now, what I'm going to talk about here is um, it's something important. It's just a, a positive aspect of pre-understanding and, and presuppositions. Interpreters approach the Bible with question, biases, pre-understandings. Inevitably, those influence the answers they obtain, but their pre-understandings are subject to revisions as a result of their honest and spirit-led study. Bible study, if pursued responsibly, if you're doing it right, affects the interpreter. The text interprets the interpreter who becomes not only the subject of interpreting, but the object interpreted. What does that mean? So when you're reading the pages of the Bible, the scriptures will influence you to understand itself. Um, so it's kind of like a, a, a cyclical uh, process. This process has led some interpreters to speak of it as the hermeneutical circle, or better, the hermeneutical spiral. We believe that it is a useful analogy. Every interpreter begins with pre-understanding. During and following an initial study of a biblical text, using all the tactics and resources available, and as a result of the working of the Spirit, you know, you did your observations on the text, you studied the cultural and the literary context, um, we're dependent on a spirit. So then the interpreter discovers that the text has affected changes on his or her understandings. Now the pre-understandings are no longer what they were. As even Paul says in Romans uh, 12, 2, we are being transformed 
by the renewing of what? Of our minds. So if our minds are being renewed in the scripture, we will get closer and closer to a more accurate interpretation. Subsequently, as the newly interpreted interpreter proceeds to engage the text further, additional, perhaps different questions or answers emerge, changing the interpret, interpreter yet again. So new, um, so once this person gets changed by what they read, then that helps them to understand a little bit more of other passages. And that affects how they change, they change a little bit more, and that affects how they understand other texts. And, and, it, and it goes. The meaning of the text has not changed. The change has occurred in the interpreter's ability to understand it more adequately and to apply it more effectively. Admittedly, there is the danger that interpretation would be only a circle rather than in a spiral. Is it, you know, some people might see it, okay, I understood it, I'm done. But no, there is a continual influence there. But this process need not to remain circular. We insist, insist that this appropriate level of pre-understanding is necessary to begin any study. This is, as we have seen, the nature of our investigation. One must have some knowledge of God even to arrive at the pre-understanding of faith. Then the instance of faith enables the Christian to study the Bible to come to a deeper understanding of God and what the Scripture says. The use of the best tools and methods and resources places believers in a position to learn, grow, and change their understanding, not merely reinforce their pre-existing ideas. So possessing pre-understandings does not doom us to a closed circle that we find in a text we want to find in a text. Though that can be a danger, but the honest and reflected and humble interpreter remains open to change, even to a significant transformation of pre-understanding and resulting behaviors. This is the hermeneutical spiral. Since we accept the Bible's authority as mediated through the Spirit, we remain open to correction by its message. I remember many times when I was in school that I had some preconceived ideas that I was taught in my home church, and I thought, this is it. And I had a strong reaction against some of my professor's interpretations. As time went by and I started getting more, you know, better acquitted with some of those tools, I was like, boy, I, I need correction here. This is not the way to, to, to look at this text. I need to set my bias aside here. The, this hermeneutical spiral illustrates a very positive experience as God, through his Holy Spirit, brings new and more adequate understanding of his truth and its application to believers' lives. All right, so the Holy Spirit has a role on this as well. Uh, we don't come up to these conclusions on our own. Remember when Jesus uh, promised the, the coming of the Comforter? That he will teach us all things. All right? If the Bible is true, and one of the presuppositions then is subscribing to his truth can, constitutes the most adequate starting point for interpreting its content. But alone, that will be insufficient to comprehend the Bible. To understand the Bible's message adequately demands appropriate methodology and a willingness of interpreters to allow the Bible to alter or clarify their pre-understandings. All right, so I'm going to give you here quickly a few principles to keep in mind on how to deal with uh, this pre-understanding, okay? This is not on your book, so if you want the, those points, or you can copy them there. Um, qualifications for the interpreter of Scripture. So there is a set of qualifications for the interpreter as you approach the text. The first one is a reasoned faith. And I'm, I'm quoting here from um, uh, Klein and Blumberg, Introduction to Biblical Interpretation. So uh, the first one is a reasoned faith in God who reveals the word. So the essential qualification for a full understanding of the Bible is to know God 
and to believe that he's speaking through it. One must have a relationship with God in order to fully understand the book God has authored. The Bible uses terms of faith to describe the essential element in this relationship. Hebrews 11.6, what does it say? For those of you who have it memorized, you can say it out loud. What does it say? And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Someone cannot understand the Bible if they don't believe in God. They, they can possibly get to the right interpretation. They will see scripture as merely a human book, which we do agree, it is a human book, but it's also a divine book. Only the one who believes and trusts in God can truly understand what God has spoken in his word, the scriptures. All right. Second point here, willingness to obey its message. Second requirement for a valid interpretation of the Bible following close upon the requirement of faith is the willingness to put oneself under the text and to submit one, one's will to hear and respond to text in a faithful manner. The truly faithful reader seeks to obey what God reveals in the scripture. As readers, we might not... We must not lose sight of the significant and after spiritual issues of the original biblical authors we're trying to communicate and be willing to obey it. We cannot genuinely understand what a text meant without allowing it to affect our lives in the, way, in the ways that the text intended. So this is so critical. If you already approach the Bible with these preconceived ideas, it will be easy for you to tune it down. And our textbook uses an example of, of that passage um, on, um, on turning the other cheek. Right? Our, our culture, boy, that, what? No, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Well, what does the scripture say? You know, is this, is this allegorical? <laughs> is this literal? Then, uh, this leads us to a third point, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. This third qualification related to the previous two is to allow the Holy Spirit to complement the process of exegesis. For his part, God provides a resource for an ob obedient understanding of this truth. The regeneration of the Holy Spirit, a consequent of the Spirit's presence in the believer's life, is the illumination of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Bible speaks of a work that God, God's Spirit performs in people once they have committed their lives in faith to the Lord. This internal capacity enables believers to perceive and apprehend a spiritual truth, an ability that is unavailable to unbelievers. Remember that we read First First Corinthians chapter two, that talks about um, unbelievers being unable to discern the truths of Scripture. Why is that? Well, because they don't have the illuminating work of the Spirit acting in their lives. So the Spirit does not reveal meanings of texts out of the blue, as it were. Illumination refers to a dynamic comprehension of the significance of Scripture and its application to life that is uniquely available to those indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit provides sincere believers that indispensable ability to comprehend the text's significance for themselves. It is when you have those aha moments. Oh, I get it now. By working within and through the methods and techniques of interpretation, the Spirit enables the readers to apprehend the message of the Bible as the Word of God for them, as the Apostle Paul puts it, God works in or among his people both to will and to act, according to Philippians 2 and uh, 2.12. He's talking about our sanctification, how we should be growing as believers, right? And he says, you know, God is the one that is putting that desire and the ability to do it. 
All right, the, th- the fifth element here, the fourth element is membership in the church. So this fourth qualification, and I think we're like, what? There should be a church member to um, Bible interpreters must be wary of the traps of individualism or tribalism, exaltation of my tribe, my sect, my church, or denomination above other groups. We need to recognize our membership in the body of Christ. You know, the scripture says that we're members of one another. By church, we mean local as well as the global body of Christ. It serves as an antidote for both individualism and tri- tribalism. First, the church is the arena in which of the most significant requirements for truly hearing the text can be nurtured. Interpreters should not work in a vacuum. People across the centuries and across the continents have puzzled over the meaning of the Bible. We require the enrichment and the efforts and assistance of our fellow believers to check our perceptions and to affirm their validity. Likewise, our conclusions, if they're correct, they have importance to others. I mean, if you understand a text well and you can explain to someone that didn't get it, what a, what a great thing. The church throughout the history constituted and illuminated by the Spirit provides accountability. It offers an arena in which we can formulate and implement our interpretations. Such accountability guards against this maverick or the individualistic and sectarian interpretations of the Bible. It keeps us on the safe side. It provides a check against selfish and self-serving conclusions by those who lack the perspective to see beyond their circumstances and prejudices. So we need each other to help in our interpretations as well. And then last, lastly here, a willingness to employ appropriate methods. The fifth and final qualification for interpretation has been assumed to this point, but I want to make it more clear. We need methods there are appropriate to the task of interpretation, okay? Yes, we have pre-understandings. Yes, God is renewing our minds through our own understanding of Scripture. Yes, there is a church, but things are not going to happen by osmosis. (laughs) You're not going to just get it. Um, You need to put the work. It requires the pursuit of excellence and learning in all dimensions, you need to understand the language, you need to understand the history and culture and literature and the theology behind it that relate to that study of scripture. If the best interpretation involving, involves a merging of these horizons, remember that we're trying to move from the ancient text to the contemporary, you know, from the, their town to our town. Um, where the, the interpreters must be aware of the worlds of the text, the ancient Near East for nearly two millennia before Christ for the Old Testament and the Roman Empire for the first century for the New Testament. There is no substitute for diligent study and the use of ab- available tools. The interpreter must cultivate a sensitivity to hear and learn from all research and data available. These require a study and practice. Interpreters cannot settle issues that concern factual matters, but an appeal to prayer and illumination for the Holy Spirit. um, But here's the thing. Prayer will not reveal to a Bible student that Baal was the god of fertility by the Canaanites, or that the Jews of Jesus' day regarded the Samaritans as hated half-breeds. I mean, you get the tension a little bit in the text, but you, you, you don't know that until you read about the Samaritans being hated by the Jews for certain reasons. One cannot determine to, to identify the sons of God in Genesis 6. Remember the sons of God that came down from heaven? and I mean, how do you come up, how do you get that if you don't study some context. So we need to come to this task humbly. One must study history and culture to discover the nature of the high place. In Bethel, for instance, what is this high place about? 
were the head coverings in, in Corinth. Do we still need to use that? Today, Bible interpreters have numerous and excellent tools that provide facts and information about the ancient world and the biblical text. So capable interpreters became acquainted with some of such research tools and used them to the best of their ability. So I'm going to conclude here with the question that our uh, textbook poses. Uh, and can we be objective as we're studying the Bible? Based on all this pre-understanding, all this cultural background that we have, this cultural baggage, he says, many writers have pointed that, our, that total objectivity interpretation is impossible. We acknowledge this. However, total objectivity is not our goal. As Christians who have an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we're not striving for a neutral or objective viewpoint. We do not seek to be secular historians as we study the text. They're not objective either. Even the historians, they have their own slant in history. We seek to hear what God has to say to us. Thus, we approach the text through faith and in the Spirit. So we want objectivity within uh, the framework of evangelical foundational beliefs like those listed above. This type of objectivity has to do with preventing our pre-understanding, our culture, our familiarity, and our laziness from obscuring the meaning that God has intended for us in the text. All right, I hope this encourages you. Um, any questions? Then I can close in prayer, but I want to give some time for questions or observations. Is this new to you? Is this something that um, you haven't thought about before, or you had an idea but didn't see the extent of it? Yeah, uh, familiarity is, is, a, is, a, is a huge issue. I remember... Um, in Brazil, they have these, they make soap operas of Bible accounts. They have this Christian TV. Um, and, you know, it, obviously it's not authoritative. You know, they're just quoting the Bible, not. Um, but I remember reading the account of, um, you know, Dinah, the, the daughter of um, Jacob, and after she gets raped and the, the brothers go and, um, destroyed the whole town. And I, I read that in the scripture, and I never really thought about the destruction that that entailed. And so in the, in the soap opera, but out of all things, you know, I was like, boy, it is a big deal here. You know, it, 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 it was a massive destruction. It was a whole people group get, that got destroyed by this angry man. So I, I, I totally can relate to what Jen is saying here, but we always have to keep questioning. You know, is this my pre-understanding? You know, I think those, those principles that I laid out there, the qualifications for interpreting, it, it, it does help us um, to, to approach it with humility, not with the overstanding, but the understanding. I'm here to, to submit to what Scripture has to say. Any other comments or questions? Just a comment. I think this is one of the protections of expository preaching as opposed to topical. Um, it's much less likely, although still likely, uh, to allow presupposition to have too much control. Um, so, also just recalling the Bereans. Um, I see the Bereans as having this willingness to employ um, the obeying its message, putting themselves under the Word of God. I think a good example of those who truly want to put the work into it understand. And so that's where it's given us as well. Great example, Dylan. Appreciate it. The, the Bereans are a model to us. You know, they, they weren't putting themselves above the word. They were putting themselves under the word to say, you know, I want to check what that guy's teaching is actually according with scripture. And that made them more noble. Why? Because it did change their lives. It did impact their lives. So, all right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word um, and for the Holy Spirit that helps us to 
understand it, to grasp its meaning. Lord, as we are in this journey to know you more and know your will for us, I pray that um, our continual growth will be dependent on you. Uh, may we have a prayerful and humble attitude and not a prideful one to assume that our presuppositions are correct. Uh, keep us from uh, individualism where we can come up with our own part particular and private interpretations, but keep us accountable to each other on how we approach uh, your word. I pray for also the impact of our understanding, Lord. If we're coming to uh, the study of your word and just feeling knowledgeable about it, but not remaining unchanged, uh, your word is not doing what it's supposed to do. And I do pray for this grace, Lord, to be given to us. I pray that you would bless the rest of our time together in fellowship and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.